welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, Ring of Fire, and Mother Jones Radio. secret to most of the mainstream press. Uh, if you are a fan of this show... Has anybody ever heard of Rachel Maddow? Then you probably know what I think of a little man I like to call John Bolton! <clears throat> the American ambassador to the United Nations, John Bolton, affectionately referred to around here as the worst diplomat in the whole world. Uh, the American representative at the United Nations is an important job, and uh, the White House could not get John Bolton approved for it in the Senate. Uh, he, he, he is literally the least diplomatic man in the United States who's not in an institution. The United States makes the U.N. work when it wants it to work, and that is exactly the way it should be because the only question, the only question to the United States is what's in our national interest. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry, but that is the fact. Is the when they, when they tried to ram through John Bolton's appointment through the Senate last year, all of these horrifying sur- stories surfaced from people who he used to, he, who he's worked with about him chasing people through hotels uh, and throwing stuff at them. His stated desire to knock several stories off the UN building because no one needed that piece of trash institution to which he was now going to be our ambassador. Uh, so they never got uh, John Bolton approved in the Senate. And um, rather than recognize that this might be some indication that he's not a good pick, uh, the White House decided to appoint him in a recess appointment instead. Uh, and a recess appointment is where Congress is out of session, and the president takes advantage of that fact to put an appointee in office temporarily without congressional approval. A recess appointment is only temporary. It expires when that Congress expires. And, and time has been quietly ticking on whether or not John Bolton was going to get to keep his suite at the Waldorf in New York, whether or not he was going to keep this job or whether he's going to get turned out on his ear. Very quietly today in Washington, something big happened in this ongoing drama, this ongoing kind of simmering quiet question as to whether or not John Bolton can ultimately get approved for this job. The man who caught the important development today in Washington uh, is named Steve Clemens. Steve is a senior fellow at the New America Foundation. He's also the author of an influential, well-read blog called WashingtonNote.com. So today I called Steve Clemens in Washington just a couple of hours ago, and I asked Asked him what happened today uh, to, that that makes the, this ongoing controversy about John Bolton. What what happened today in this ongoing controversy? Well, a few weeks ago, uh, we had this extraordinary event where a, uh, a a vote for John Bolton was supposed to be held, and Lincoln Chafee told uh, the chairman of the committee, Richard Luger, that if the vote was held that day. Chafee was voting no. Hmm. So the Bolton nomination was quickly pulled from the docket. Because they didn't want to have a vote that went the wrong way. They'd rather just not have a vote. Yeah, and what... What has not been reported very much out there, but it's been fascinating to watch, is that Lincoln Chafee wrote Secretary Rice a letter uh, essentially wrapping his concerns about John Bolton in a critique of the administration's Middle East policy mm. and a failing to uh, put a credible roadmap in place either for a two-state solution with Israel-Palestine or a, a broader uh, strategy that might be successful in the Middle East. Then what happened is the president last Tuesday gave a, a significant speech on Middle East policy, what his Middle East policy was, 
in the United Nations General Assembly. And literally within minutes after that speech, um, a State Department emissary was over negotiating and trying to lobby Chafee to change his vote. Wow. So saying to Lincoln, Chafee, you expressed these concerns. We think that the president's speech today addressed those concerns. In a big are, way. Are right, you now right. on board with Bolton? And very specifically about that, uh, about the Israel-Palestine side. So there was some thinking that perhaps Chafee would, would change his vote. Now, politically, it didn't make sense for Chafee to change his vote, but there's always the possibility. And what no one paid attention to is that Richard Lugar kept on the schedule a business meeting for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee this week. And it had no real business, but it was just sitting lurking there. It didn't say John Bolton. But it would have been the last theoretical time for the administration to get Chafee to switch, to have a snap vote that that none of the public was paying attention to, and to kick it out of committee this afternoon. Uh, what we found out this morning, however, is that they've canceled that that uh, meeting, which is a clear sign that Chafee had not changed his mind on John Bolton. And that means that with that meeting canceled, there's no other opportunity for that committee that would uh, right. have the chance to confirm Bolton. There's no other opportunity, at least before the elections, right. for Bolton there's to There's no confirm. way for his his nomination to get from committee to the floor of the Senate without the actions of the, of, of, of the committee, which is going to go out uh, this week. So uh, without the floor, the, the Senate is going to go out this week. So a lame duck session theoretically could do it, but I actually know from talking to a number of other Republicans that, that once the binds are off and you're in a lame duck session, they're not necessarily going to vote for, Bol- for Bolton and a cloture vote. So it's dead. It's, it's really remarkable that this has all happened with very little fanfare and very little notice just because of a canceled meeting, but it's a very, very vital cancellation of a meeting. And, and is this, I mean, is this truly, truly over for Bolton? I mean, is there any way that they could keep him in that post without the Senate ever actually confirming him? The president has two options that are being considered, both of which are bad. One is the president could appoint John Bolton for a second recess appointment for the same job. But what happens in that case is no taxpayer money can go to pay his salary, pay for his travel, or pay for the facilities in which he works. So it'd essentially be appointing a volunteer to the U.N. A volunteer to the U.N. That's that's exactly right. And that's, I'm sure, not palatable. And I think it raises, I think it becomes fascinating to everyone. And, and, you know, John Bolton becomes the news rather than his diplomatic objectives. And that, that would be healthy. The other thing, and I don't have any read on how likely it is, but I do know that the White House has considered it, is making a recess appointment of John Bolton to a lower position in the U.N. and appointing him to one of the four other ambassadorial level positions. There's one where he is the political ambassador and... um, and would you just leave the top job unappointed, leave it leave open? Leave the so? top job unappointed and make him the acting ambassador and acting chief of mission. Okay, both of those are totally sneaky and slimy and contrary to American strength at, in the, at the international level. They, they reinforce the illegitimacy of John Bolton, of not having said. They, they, they create an echo chamber for it. So many people in the career foreign service are appalled by even talking about it. But nonetheless, I do know that it's something the White House is considered. Steve Clemens uh, speaking with me just a little while ago this afternoon. Steve Clemens is uh, perhaps the preeminent Bolton watcher in Washington. He's a senior fellow at the New America Foundation, and he runs WashingtonNote.com. And, you know, at the end of the interview there, uh, Steve Clemens is expressing some confidence in the White House that they might not do something as stupid uh, as as they could do. They might not do something as stupid as keeping John Bolton 
uh, at the United Nations without him really having rights to that job. Keeping him there as a volunteer or as some mini-ambassador, but there's no real ambassador, so he's just filling in. Steve Clemens is arguing, I think, optimistically and hopefully and almost admirably that, uh, you know, that would be really bad for American interests at the international stage, so hopefully that means the White House wouldn't do something that dumb. I wish I agreed <laughs> with Steve on that one and that I was as hopeful that they wouldn't keep John Bolton in there if, if it were bad for the country and bad for our international influence, etc. But, you know, I, I keep coming back to it, it, the fact that if they worried about our international influence, if they worried about our ability to press our, pre- press our national interests on the international stage, then they wouldn't have put an impotent little screamer like, uh, the, like, like John Bolton at the UN in the first place. If, if they really cared, they wouldn't have ever tried. Uh, if indeed they can't get this guy confirmed, I do not put it past the White House to try to pull off some really sneaky, shady shenanigans to keep Bolton at the job nonetheless. They've shown a willingness to go as far as they possibly Possibly can for him in the past. I don't see any reason why they'd pull back now. But stay tuned on this one. Describe Karl Rove as one of the most powerful unelected politicians in history. I guess is the only way I can distill and synthesize what you've said in in that book. Uh, t- tell us how you get there. Well, I think George W. Bush. No, I don't think I know that his presidency is a direct result of Karl's planning and scheming and organizing and raising money. And he's the one who's kept him in power. He's the one who got him reelected against all odds with an unpopular war and a bad economy. And he's the one who's driving all of the issues that the president takes around the country. Now, of course, you have to acknowledge the fact that he's taken some hits with the FBI investigation, the federal investigation over the Valerie Plame leak, and the current political environment and the war becoming even more unpopular may have a longer-term effect on Carl's historical legacy. But I don't think there's any question that this man has accomplished things as a political consultant that appear almost to be on the verge of magic. Well, he appears to be, as you point out, he's pathological in nature. I mean, he's spent so much time really making things up and distorting what's what's true and what's not. And so I don't know that he's really affected by all of this. Well, I think the claim investigation, Mike, did have an effect on him. He was down, I understand. and But what happened to Katrina was inevitable. That was a product of the whole philosophy that Carl and the Republicans have promulgated, which is to sort of eviscerate government and turn it into nothing more than a symbol and not functional. And when it finally has to deliver services, we get to see what actually is there. But generally, Carl is able to look into the face of a hurricane and say, oh, you know, that's not much more than a breeze. And he deals with it in a way that, as you suggest, is pathological. I've said over and over many times that 
Carl is able to create an alternative reality in which he functions and his party functions, and if you don't hit them up the side of the head with a big enough two-by-four, their reality wins out. It's all about politics with him, or does he, does he have a real political ideology? Is this, is this real? Well, I believe that everything is political utility with him. I think, it, I think the ideology uh, exists, but only to the extent that it has value for acquiring more political power and moving things along. He's fundamentally a conservative person. There's no question about that. But does he really, really care about gays and lesbians getting married? Not really, but he does care that that will energize and motivate their base to turn out and vote for them. And he's a guy, for instance, who has used churches in this country as a gigantic vote delivery system, but he's fundamentally agnostic. He doesn't really have any deeply held religious beliefs, but he's able to motivate religious voters. I think a perfect example of that, Mike, is what happened last time with when they identified 11 key swing states to push a statewide anti-gay marriage amendment. And what you saw, curiously, was that the basic idea behind the immorality of gay marriage was promoted by the Republicans, and it appealed not only to the white Christian fundamentalists, but also many conservative black churches were motivated. I was in Ohio, and I heard a black pastor say from the pulpit, don't you dare vote against God. And <laughs> the, the whole idea was that, you know, this is not something that God allows. It's not something that the Bible approves of. And Bush's numbers uh, among black voters went up significantly in Ohio in that last election by four or five points, as I recall. Yeah, he it, didn't he kind of send an operative out into the field to basically preach the idea that the Democratic Party had a relationship with the KKK and uh, that uh, African-American voters should show up to vote against that. Yep. He was going to a number of places, putting on a slideshow and playing videotapes that that <laughs> indicated that the antecedents of the uh, KKK came from conservative Southern Democrats, and they were the ones clo- most closely connected to the organization. This is an evil man. Tell tell us, how did, how did he evolve? I, how do you get this, this character that, at the end of the day, everybody refers to, including the president, as the turd blossom? He came from a basically conservative family. His father traveled a lot. He was a geologist, and his mother was a housewife. When the rest of us were out running around with tie-dyed t-shirts and long hair and protesting the war in Vietnam, this guy was wearing a blue blazer and a tie to school and and getting in fights with people about Richard Nixon versus Kennedy. And this man has known from the beginning that he wanted to guide political parties and issues and politicians, and he has never strayed from it. I mean, you pick, pick any issue. I mean, pick the gay issue. He probably really doesn't care. He just knows that it's a divisive issue and he goes forward with it. Is there something about his background that puts him there? It's hard to put a finger on any one thing. I mean, you know, we write in the book about his his relationship with his stepfather, and this is a curious thing as well because uh, his stepfather came home with Carl's senior year in high school and told his mother that uh, he was gay and he was going to come out of the closet and he wanted a divorce. And this is, Carl calls him his father, by the way, Louis Rove. He never knew his biological father. And Louis raised him. The divorce was very early in his life. And, and Carl was close to him. But obviously, when his father abandoned his mother, this had some sort of effect on him and everyone else in the family. Carl's mother ultimately committed suicide 
many years later, and that may have been connected to this revelation. But Carl covered up his father's uh, sexual orientation forever and ever. Then, as his, the day after his father died in July of 2004, Carl got on the campaign plane and went out and began pushing the anti-gay agenda all across America. So I'll leave it to the students of Freud to do the artful <laughs> deconstruction of all this, but... It's obvious that the zealousness with which he pursues some of these issues uh, uh, leaves some unsettled questions for Carl. issue of Mother Jones magazine details the life and political times of Pete McCloskey, who spent his life as a very active Republican for California and then tried to run against Richard Pombo. The big difference now is he doesn't believe that Pombo represents the Republican Party that he grew up with. He's lost his challenge and is now endorsing Jerry McNerney. Pombo's challenger for the Congressional California District 11 seat. We're going to talk now to Dick Russell, who wrote the article for Mother Jones Magazine, Revolt of the Elders. Hi, Dick. Hi, good to be with you today. Tell me what drew you to this story. You know, it's, it was a fascinating story to work on. Pete McCloskey is, is someone that back when I was in college, I knew about him in that he was, uh, well, he was sort of not a radical Republican, but a maverick. He was in Congress uh, from California and pretty well known back in the early 1970s because, uh, for one thing, uh, he, t- he was the first uh, of the Republican Party to take on Nixon over the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. He was the first to call for Nixon's impeachment during the Watergate scandal. He uh, created the, co-authored the Endangered Species Act and, and was the Republican who was part of the first Earth Day in 1970. I mean, a very interesting figure. And so I knew about him back then. And when I learned that he had come out of retirement at the age of 78 to go against Richard Pombo in the Republican primary in District 11 in Northern California, I thought it would be just a fascinating uh, story to get into and and get a chance to talk to McCloskey and find out why he was doing this and also uh, who Pombo was. It's interesting that your article starts with the phrase from McCloskey, don't be under any illusions that I am a great man. And there is the making of a you know, Reader's Digest or Movie of the Week thing. He comes out of retirement when he's almost 80 years old to save the soul of his party. But there is a, a, a true element of that in there, isn't it? Oh, there absolutely is. I mean, he hadn't intended to run again for Congress. As he said, he, I, I think I may be about as popular in Washington these days as a skunk in church. But he, uh, he did come out of retirement to do it after trying to find someone else, a much younger candidate, to go against Pombo. And originally, he had just started out with an old friend of his forming a coalition they called Revolt of the Elders because he was so upset about the corruption uh, that's happened t- today in Washington, 
generally, but especially with the Republican Party, and as represented by Tom DeLay, and then as he uh, began looking further into it, discovered that uh, this fellow Doolittle and also Pombo in California had a lot of ethics problems of their own, uh, besides, in Pombo's case, really uh, setting out to gut every environmental law that McCloskey had been uh, instrumental in forging back in the early 1970s. Can you detail some of the corruption issues that we have against Pombo? Well, there's a number of them, certainly. In a personal sense, he's, he's put his family on the payroll, his, his brothers and, and his wife. I mean, this is not illegal, but he's, you know, they've, they've gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars. He would not, in, in the sense of the Altamont Pass, where his father uh, has a, a major area of farm where they have a lot of wind turbines in California, uh, there were efforts to try to do something about the number of birds that were being killed by these turbines, and, and Pombo uh, wouldn't hear of it. But it goes well beyond that. He was uh, one of the major figures taking money from Jack Abramoff, the indicted lobbyist. Uh, there have been rumors uh, that Pombo's name is going to come up big time in the in the Abramoff scandal. He was very close to uh, Tom DeLay, the uh, since-disgraced uh, House Majority Leader, and uh, DeLay, in fact, was the one who got Pombo his post mm-hmm. as the head of the House Resources Committee, the youngest committee chairman in all of Congress. Well, yeah, in fact, he is so corrupt that Crew, which is the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, has named him one of the 13 most corrupt lawmakers in Washington. And that came up in a debate that you covered as part of the story. It was the only debate that was held during the McCloskey Challenge. And here is Richard Pombo's response. You heard tonight people saying stuff about what my position was on something or quoting me saying things that I never said. There's an old saying, if you tell a lie often enough, people will start to believe it. But it's still a lie. That's ironic in how many different ways. <laughs> oh, boy, I'll tell you. That was fascinating being at that debate. It took place in uh, Pombo's hometown of Tracy. And so, uh, obviously, he had that uh, hometown boy advantage, but there were a lot of McCloskey supporters there. They they sat on opposite sides of the room, and it was a standing-room-only crowd in this uh, middle school gymnasium. And, and it was quite a night, and, and McCloskey didn't pull any punches, and, and uh, as, as one could tell from that uh, that quote there from Pombo speaking that night, he, he kind of got, uh, got under the skin of Pombo as well he should. But Pombo ultimately went on to win. Yes, he did. He, it's a heavily Republican district. Pombo has been in the House since for 14 years. He's well known in the area. McCloskey was considered by some uh, to be a, a carpetbagger. He, he moved into the into the district in order to take on Pombo. And uh, what really disappointed McCloskey, I think, more than anything, was that it just didn't seem like his message about corruption and uh, how it had really taken over Washington, D.C., and especially the U.S. Congress, was really uh, getting across to people, or, or people just, you know, wanted, wanted to be in denial about it. And, and he really hoped that the ethics that he believed in and that have, are pretty much banished from Washington, would uh, this would strike a chord with people, and it didn't really seem to. You know, it puts me in mind of what happened with the 2004 election, where the left was concerned that that the, the pile of evidence of corruption and other wrongdoing by the Republicans and the far right was so unmistakable that the country would be back in more moderate hands. And that didn't happen. And then McCloskey had his hopes, and it didn't happen. But you depict McCloskey as not a man who's giving up. I'm going to ask him about that himself, but I'd like your impression of of, of why he hasn't just turned his back now. He's done what he set out to do. 
Well, he certainly raised awareness about who Pombo is and, and set out to uh, try to get him ousted, but that hasn't happened yet. And so he is now, the revolt of the elders coalition is still continuing, and uh, he's trying to get young people involved uh, by going out and, and speaking all over the place, and, and as he did during the Vietnam War era, when he was a much younger man. But I think he's absolutely committed to uh, to trying to in whatever way he can, uh, bring about some kind of change with the corrupt climate in Washington, and he sees Pombo as representing really uh, the worst of what's what's been going on for the last, whatever, decade or so, since the Republicans took control of Congress in 1994. Well, as I mentioned in the beginning, now he has crossed party lines and endorsed the Democratic challenger to Richard Pombo. What are the chances Jerry McNerney can actually make inroads against Pombo, maybe even overthrowing him? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, I'd like to think that there's a possibility that can happen. And I, I know that a lot of people, certainly uh, environmental groups all over the country, have, have mobilized uh, to try to get Pombo out of there because of, he's basically set out to not only uh, destroy the Endangered Species Act, but he's after the National Environmental Policy Act. He's trying to open up uh, the offshore oil areas to the big oil companies again uh, off many coastlines in the United States, and that's been outlawed for a number of years. I mean, he's really bad news for the environment, and he's in a very powerful position as head of the House Resources Committee. So there's been a lot of mobilization to try to uh, to do something that will send him down to defeat, and I think probably this year there may be a better chance, given the fact that people are, in a lot of ways, fed up with what they're seeing in Washington, maybe there's a better chance than there has been in previous years. So please, 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 let me, let me, let me, let me. Get what I want this time Haven't had a dream in a long time See the life I've had can make a good man bad So for once in my life let me what I want Lord knows it would be the first time Every day we do enjoy poking a sharp Lord stick at the soft white underbelly of American politics flipping over the day's news to show you the slimy scheming political tactics at work underneath uh, Today's underbelly political tactic doesn't have a snappy name but it is very simple, very easy It is political favoritism uh, there have been two jaw-dropper stories about political favoritism in the past few days, in the past week or so. Uh, the first one was from the Friday News Dump, a report they waited until late in the day on Friday to release, uh, a report from the Inspector General of the Department of Education. They wait to release stuff like this late in the day on Friday so that it only uh, makes it into the Saturday papers, which not very many people read, and hopefully it gets overshadowed by what's ever in the Sunday papers, and by the time Monday rolls around, people like, oh, I don't know, Rachel Maddow aren't talking about it. Has anybody ever heard of Rachel Maddow? But sometimes I do. Uh, under Bush's No Child Left Behind program, No Child's Behind Left, whatever it's called, uh, there is a, there's another, there's a grant program called Reading First. And it's a big grant program. It's a $5 billion grant program, uh, which seems to have been run about as well as the planning for the Iraq War. Uh, some states had to apply for their reading grants as many as six times. Uh, to get money out of the Bush administration for these read, for, 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 for the big federal reading program. Um, the way that they gave out this money 
was to create panels, supposedly panels of experts, who would give these giant educational grants, tens of millions of dollars to the states um, to use for, for, for textbooks and, and curricula for, for reading. And this was, you know, states need education money. This is one of the biggest ways to get it from the federal government. And so they'd have to go through these panels to get any funding. Number one, the Department of Education stacked the panels, surprise, surprise, with people who had conflicts of interest, people who were tied to specific publishers who were going to get these grants, right, these textbook grants. Number two, they specifically, at the national level, boxed out the textbook companies, the publishing companies, the contractors, that they politically did not like. One email from the head of Reading First, a guy named Chris Doherty, actually had to be blacked out by the inspector general because it was vulgar. He was talking about one publisher here that didn't meet Bush administration political standards, and he said, quote, They're trying to crash our party, and we need to beat the out of them in front of all the other would-be party crashers standing on the front lawn waiting to see how we welcome these dirtbags. That's the head of the Reading First program. Quite becoming, isn't it? So the, the, the Inspector General's report from the Department of Education gets released late in the day on Friday. Also in the past week, we've had news of Alfonso Jackson, the head of Housing and Urban Development, still a cabinet secretary, whose Inspector General also reported political favoritism. He instructed his staff at HUD, at his department, that they should only give discretionary contracts to people who support the president politically. He blocked contracts for specific firms that he didn't think were pro-Bush enough. He systematically intervened to stop contracts for firms that made Democratic campaign contributions. Now, on the one hand, that is a you know political underbelly tactic. That's the kind of thing that I might suss out of the news to tell you is a political underbelly tactic. Political favoritism. You reward your friends and you punish your enemies. You use the spoils of, of taxpayer money and government contracts to build a structural advantage for the Republican Party. You give Republicans money. Uh, you know, you create this equation where you tell people if you give people re- re- Republicans money, if you make political donations to the Republican Party, you'll succeed as a business and as a government contractor. It's a tactic. Like the, like the K Street project of, of making all the lobbyists Republicans. Remember that one? It's a tactic for building structural Republican strength. You know what it also is? It's illegal. It's a violation of federal law that is supposed to put a person in the crowbar hotel, in the pokey, when they do this. Giving out contracts on the basis of a contractor's political affiliation or contributions is illegal. It is clear as day. This is not some woolly campaign finance thing that nobody understands. It's illegal. Alfonso Jackson and Rod Page, who was the education secretary when this textbook stuff went on at the Department of Ed, those guys ought to be in jail for stuff like this. And in the case of Alfonso Jackson, they certainly shouldn't still be a cabinet secretary when this is what their inspector general for their own department has already found.
the PAP attack. Donald Segretti went to prison for the Republicans. Segretti was the point man for the Republican Party's political filth machine during the 70s when being a criminal political operative for Richard Nixon was almost a true badge of courage by Republican standards. Segretti was actually one of the very few Republican black bag operatives who wasn't hugely rewarded for being a political thug. After all, Gordon Liddy got his own radio show. Oliver North, well, he's become a well-paid Fox News analyst. And it doesn't seem fair that Segretti, who was the darling of the GOP, attack machine, should disappear into obscurity after all the fraud and mud that he spread around for the Republicans for so long. But Segretti was easily replaced by Lee Atwater, who openly admitted that he learned about his best political filth programs from Darling Don. Atwater was a Republican's Republican who had caused so much harm to honesty and decency in politics that just months before a brain tumor sucked away his last breath of life, Atwater wrote books and magazines asking for forgiveness for all the foul, squalid, bottom-feeding politics that he participated in on behalf of the grand old party. It's not clear whether that appeal for forgiveness was being directed to the many people whose lives he had ruined, or whether it was a direct appeal to God to give him a pass on hell and forgive all the evil he had created on this earth. But whichever, the new Segretis and the new Atwaters never paid much attention to Atwater's late pathetic epiphany. Part of that putrid pile of evil left behind by Atwater was his political understudy, Karl Rove. Americans have a purely negative view of Karl Rove by a margin of two to one. They don't care that he's not actually being prosecuted for the CIA treason incident, but intuitively and correctly, they know that Rove's got his grimy hands all over it. And whether it's accurate or not, they hear his name associated with acts of voter fraud in Florida and Ohio, and most Americans are even beginning to see the political policy connections between 2,600 dead American soldiers in Iraq and Karl Rove's desperate attempt to further nothing but pure Republican politics. As amazing as it may seem, they're not even buying into Rove's Terror of Terrorism Act anymore. And Americans are quickly growing weary of Karl Rove's lapdog army of political evangelicals who would gladly exchange the teachings of Christ for the politics of Karl Rove like a mass of dumbed-down moonies. The truth is, Karl Rove is finally losing his grip, even though he's still pulling out virtually every foul, murky trick that he learned from the forgotten Donald Segretti and the still-dead probably still unforgiven, Lee Atwater. So even with that black bag of political tricks, soccer moms, his one-time strongest base, support Democrats for Congress over Republicans by a margin of 12 points. 77% of Americans are saying that Rove's Republican Congress is doing at very best a fair-to-poor job. 55% of Americans, well, they finally understand that Rove's boss, the little shrub, is dishonest. And worse yet, even the group that pollsters call Walmart Republicans disapprove of Republicans to the tune of 55%. The happy ending to all this should be that there will be no happy ending for the Rove GOP filth machine in 2006. And with just a little luck, the Democrats, in spite of their incompetence, are going to take back Congress, initiate hearings, and issue subpoenas that'll finally put Rove's life on the same obscure path as Donald Segretti, acknowledged as being a one-time influential 
national GOP bottom feeder, but in the end, regarded by historians, is just another unclean Republican political leper. The Pap Attack on Air America Radio Network. Go to ringoffireradio.com or airamericaradio.com for more info. Fresh in from his orchard in California. Hi, thanks for joining us. Fresh in from shoveling horse manure also. Thank you. (laughs) Is that a skill you learned in Washington? (laughs) Yes, 15 years. In fact, you served from 67 to 82, but you've never, I mean, even since then, you've still been politically active. Well, not really until this, uh, this last situation where the Republican House leadership became so corrupted that a lot of us felt we had to take a hand. You know, we talked to some extent to Dick about the logistics of your going so far now as to have endorsed a Democrat in the Pombo congressional race. Can you talk to me emotionally about what that's like? I mean, you were very deeply respectful of your Republican Party, even if you didn't always follow it, its uh, its mandates. Well, the, the party that I knew uh, started more or less with uh, Wendell Wilkie and Dwight Eisenhower and uh, uh, there was a little lapse there with Richard Nixon, but I thought Jerry Ford and George Bush Sr., Bob Dole, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, we had a fine party, and it was a mix of conservatives and, and uh, moderates and uh, some liberals. Uh, but of late, uh, it has become the creature of the far right, and I've seen good friends like Dole and Bush have to go and embrace uh, fundamentalist ministers like Falwell and uh, Pat Robertson, in order to get the Republican nomination. And the party has sort of pulled away from any of the old reasonable bases, like balanced budgets and honesty and freedom from lobbying control. Those things caused us uh, some grief, but uh, I don't feel badly at all about endorsing Democrats. I think that the thing that may save the nation would be if the Democrats took control of the House in November, because they could at least restore some congressional oversight. There's been no oversight of this administration for five years. A lot of people, though, would disagree with you that the Democrats are equipped to do anything about that. They're portrayed by a lot of people as bumbling and fumbling, and if you gave them the ball, they wouldn't know what to do with it. Well, I think that might be true of some of their leaders, but the solid base of Democrats in the House, people like Sam Farr and Tom Udall and George Miller and Anna Eshu, that's a good, solid set of people, and I think their values are closer to what the old Republican Party used to be than what I would call the, the left-wing of the Democrat Party is today. So I don't, I don't, as I say, I'm not under any illusions that if the Democrats don't take power, they won't uh, one day be corrupted by it, just like the Republicans have been. But I think you need a shift back and forth between two parties, and it's just a shame that 
the Democrats aren't uh, showing the leadership yet that some of their people are capable of. I have a great respect for Jack Murtha. I mean, there was a quiet, solid, conservative Democrat, and he's come out and had the courage to say what I think most of them believe but are afraid to say. Do you feel like you're alone in your new assessment of the Republican Party, or do you think there are others active who aren't as loud about it as you are, or straightforward? Well, I guess my greatest disappointment is John McCain. He was my idea of a straight-talking, straight Republican. He's had to go meet Jerry Falwell in order to have a chance at the Republican nomination. Lincoln Chafee has stood tall. He's hung in there against Bolton, even though... The Republican Party poured money and effort into getting him reelected. Uh, there's Olympia Snow and Susan Collins. There's Chuck Hagel. Uh, there's some pretty good people still around, but it's hard for him to speak out uh, with this uh, control of the party in the hands of what I would call the fundamentalist religious right, our equivalent of the Taliban. <laughs> there's this fear of speaking out. Uh, is just dead wrong. The country ought to have a square exchange of differing views. Uh, I've changed my position when people have persuaded me I was wrong, and I, I just think this concept that we're all right because we think this and we want godly members of Congress and we, we uh, want to fight wars wherever Bush wants us to fight a war, all of those things are dead wrong, and somebody ought to speak out about it. And if you're alone to start with, you'll have a group with you next year and a bigger group the year following, and that's how the country works. Well, you faced some personal losses when you decided to run against Richard Pombo, which you, frankly, were not terribly enthusiastic about doing, but your enthusiasm <laughs> gained as you went along. But people who'd stood by you forever, heck, you used to go, you've actually gone fishing with Dick Cheney as friends, and one by one, the people that you were counting on just dropped away. Well, Dick, uh, Dick has sort of changed since I knew him. I thought when he was in the House, uh, we were friends. He, uh, he was a pretty solid guy, uh, conservative, but this uh, this views, the attitudes that he's expressed uh, since he's been vice president are kind of scary to me. I'd, I'd like to see Dick and talk it out with him, but when he came out to make a fundraising speech for Pombo, he didn't want to meet with me, and he didn't want to meet with anybody. He didn't want to answer questions from the press. Uh, he just kind of went in the back door and came out the back door and was gone. Tell me about the Revolt of the Elders, which is the title of Dick Russell's piece. In January of 2005, that's almost two years ago, the Republicans took the step of changing the ethics rules to protect Tom DeLay. I don't know if anybody remembers this, but oh yes, we, <laughs> yeah. we, we had a we had a bipartisan ethics committee, five Republicans and five Democrats. They admonished DeLay three times for actions that he'd taken, which were clear abuses of power, uh, threatening one lobby group that uh, they wouldn't have access to the Republicans unless they hired a Republican lobbyist. And even the Republicans, uh, some of them couldn't stomach that, so they admonished him. So immediately the House leadership, including DeLay and Pombo and Doolittle and Nay, uh, get together and they change the rules so that DeLay can't be prosecuted. And that just, uh, that outrages some of us who are former members of Congress or former members of the Bush or the Ford or the Reagan administration got together and we said, well, let's revolt. And that was the revolt of the elders. And we set out to try to get the ethics rules changed, and if we couldn't do that, to defeat the DeLay Republicans. We've seen DeLay leave, we've seen Bob Ney leave, uh, we've seen Cunningham indicted and in jail. I think you're going to see other Republicans caught up in the Abramoff scandal that are going to be indicted before too long, but I'll tell you, 
old people like me either have the uh, privilege of relaxing and deploring things or you can get out and do something. And I'm finding a tremendous number of people in their 70s and their 60s and their 80s even that are more interested in the future of America than are the people under 50. The, the great disillusionment has not been that people didn't care. It's just that young people don't care and don't feel that they can make any difference by participating in the system. I, I must have heard a hundred times that, sure, he's a crook, uh, Congressman, but aren't they all crooks back in Washington? That's a hard one to answer when you see what's happening in the Republican House leadership refusing to deal with a lobbying problem, refusing to deal with the ethics problems. Uh, that's one of the times when citizens ought to speak out, and when they do speak out, the message gets through back to Congress that they better shape up, and that's, that's what I hope will happen this November. Pete McCloskey, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. And I just want to take a minute or so to tell you about how well things are going over at the Best of the Left Community and Contributor Project. If you don't know what I'm talking about, basically, you know, originally I was doing all of the editing, finding all the clips, you know, doing all the grunt work for the show, and, you know, gave myself a little bit of a nervous breakdown doing all that. that that's not really true. But, you know, I got a little bit overwhelmed, and, uh, and lo and behold... Uh, here came the cavalry to, uh, you know, save my uh, sanity and the show all at the same time. And it came together in the form of the Best of the Left Community forum and message board. And uh, so I, I sincerely suggest that you, you check it out, you know, sign up if you're interested. And, you know, do it now before it's cool, because then you have bragging rights for the future. But... You know, it's just a group of, you know, really great, really interesting people who've gotten together. You know, there's lots of interesting conversations breaking out all the time. You know, there's a bunch of atheists debating how mean we should be to Christians and, you know, whether or not we should make fun of them or not. I mean, it's fantastic. Where else are you going to get a conversation like that? And uh, but then there's also lots of ways to actually support the show. You know, if you if you like the show, if you want to kind of throw in your two cents or, you, you know, just help perpetuate it in one way or another. Uh, there's lots of stuff you can do. So, uh, you know, show up, sign up, introduce yourself, and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll help you get started. Absolutely. So um, I think what I would suggest you do is not, not just that, but uh, go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com and actually click on the support the show link. Uh, I, it's been up there for a while and I've really just forgotten to mention it for a very long time. But if you're interested in supporting the show at all, that's where you need to go. Uh, that'll give you the link to the community. It'll give you links to uh, vote at Podcast Alley, which is very important, you know, keeping me up in the rankings and, you know, getting more exposure that way. Uh, leaving reviews at iTunes, also a very important thing to do. Uh, it helps... Um, you know, get the show featured in iTunes so that more people find it. You know, it, it's all about it's all about exposure. It's all about you know trying to trying to get new listeners because you know if if you think it's um, if you think that what you're listening to is something that needs to be heard by more people, then there are absolutely things you can do to help it get heard by more people. So just check out the support the show link and uh, and and do 
you know, whatever uh, whatever suits your fancy in that vein of, uh, of thinking. So thanks to all of you for any and all support that you give the show, even if it's just that you listen and send your good thoughts. It's it's all uh, it's all valid. It's all very much appreciated. So uh, you know, tell a friend and uh, have a good one, everybody. Oh